Welcome to The Lisa Show. Well, it's no secret that I love books, and I feel like when I walk into a library, or especially when I walk into most of the rooms in my house, which have a bookcase, that when I look at the books, each one gives me a specific feeling or memory. It's the one thing that... uh, my minimalist heart will let me collect. Not everyone is as lucky to have access to a lot of different stories and books at their fingertips. And some people haven't even had an education where they're taught to read. And it's hard to believe, but even in 2020, we live in a time where some people uh, still don't know or haven't been taught how to read, and literacy is still an issue. But our next guest, I'm excited about highlighting. He's working to bring books to families around the world. Tyler Clark is the CEO and founder of the nonprofit organization Village Book Builders. He believes that access to books and education can help end the cycle of poverty, and he's here to discuss how his organization is helping to do just that. Welcome, Tyler. Hey, thanks for having me on, Lisa. So Village Book Builders, what is your main goal? So our main goal is to spread hope through books, right? I love um, that. So we build li- yeah. So we spread libraries around the world. Uh, right now we have libraries in Africa, Nepal, and also Central America. And our big thing is we allow kids to have a safe place to dream, grow, um, and dream about future opportunities. And so what kind of services do you provide? So our main thing when we go to an area, of course, mm-hmm. is we're setting up a reading culture. It's not enough just to bring books to an area. They have to actually read them. Right. We spend a lot of times with the families. The families of the whole community actually come together to build the library. Oh, wow. We just provide the materials. They actually provide the labor to do it. So it becomes their library, which is empowering for them and also it um, helps with the success of the library. Um, So it's a big thing when we come in, we not only, you know, help them build the actual building, but we come in, we provide books, we provide computers, a thing called a Rachel server that gives them the power of the internet, even in rural Africa. Um, and also online mentoring. I love this idea of a reading culture and setting up a reading culture. Tell me a little bit more about that, about how you can help families do that. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting, like, if you go to these countries, Lisa, and education is all important to them. Mm-hmm. We'll, have, we'll have areas where, for example, we just built a library in Malawi. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, these people are living on less than a dollar a day. I mean, that's the kind of level of poverty it is, yeah. right? And they actually, we didn't know this until afterwards, but a lot of these parents would go without meals for multiple days so they could help provide for the library, so they could help um, wow. build the library. Yeah. And honestly, we would have said, no, 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 we'll yeah. like, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. Nobody oh. needs to starve. But that, that's what they'll do. They, because education for them, for their kids, the opportunity to have these resources is huge. So, you know, not saying that, but they also, they've never had the culture of reading with their kids. That's a, hmm. that's a novel thing, right? Mm-hmm. So... We actually go around from house to house, and we have a whole program where the volunteers that come with us, uh, they come and they talk to the parents. You sit down on their bamboo mat outside their house or inside their house um, and talk to them about how reading has affected your life and how your parents have read to you, and then talk to them about reading with their own kids. Wow. Uh, We train the staff to do it as well, and it's amazingly. So we'll have this community in Malawi. Um, we let them check out little LED lights and they'll come home and they'll set up the LED light, which is the only light they'll have in the house, and mm-hmm. they'll all sit around as their daughter reads to them a book. Oh, wow. And it's just this amazing culture change for them. So you mentioned some of the places that you've already built libraries. How many ha- has your organization built? So we just finished our ninth, um, and then we have another five under construction. Wow. You know, uh, something that really struck me about your organization is that your ultimate goal, yes, is to spread hope through books, but to to break the cycle of poverty uh, with a book. How do, how do you think that libraries are going to help break this cycle? So one of the biggest things that we see in these areas is teen pregnancy. The percentage is just it's terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, in some parts of Africa where we serve, the teen pregnancy rate is about 45. You'll see kids 
13 years old with a baby in their arms, wow. right? Yeah. Um, just because mm. I'm in this area, there's really no hope for a future. So why not just start a family, get more hands on the farm and go for it, right? Mm-hmm. So, but we'll see in these areas, once we establish a library, we get the computers in there, we have the mentoring established, that the teen pregnancy rate will go to about 4%. Really? That drastic? Mm-hmm. Now, it depends on every area and how entrenched it is in the different cultures. Uh, but our one library in Ghana, that's where it went. Um, and also in Malawi, we're seeing the same trend. Now, you mentioned these classes um, at the libraries. Uh, why is this an important part of what you're doing? And, you know, because I would think you, <laughs> you spend all this time and money setting up these libraries and trying to, you know, organize them and build them. What part does the, do the classes play? So while we're down there, so we lead these humanitarian trips where we bring people that are book lovers to come down and help us build the library because it's really important to bring the people that love books so they can share that love. Uh, but while they're there, they teach uh, what we call an imagination class and then a skills and success class and then explorers class. Now, each class has its own purpose of why we do it. The imagination class is to actually help the kids invigorate their own imagination. In a lot of these cultures, these kids have been working on, you know, the cocoa farms or in the field since they were four for mm. about 10 hours each day. So you can imagine, that doesn't really give you a lot of time to imagine you're on a spaceship flying through the cosmos, right? right? Yeah. And so it's actually, a, it's a, it's a, it's a um, you know, paradigm shift for these kids like, hey, let's, let's all pretend that we're hunting mammoths. Let's get out our spears. Come on, let's go. And they're like, wait, what? What are you talking about? Right. I don't see any spears. Um, so we kind of go through that, and it helps them also dream of the future of what they can become, which is crucial for the success skills class, where we teach them how to plan, how to set goals, um, how to keep a simple, simple budget, stuff like that. Right. Um, and then the third class is the explorers class, and that's what we teach them. Hey, if you have a question... If you want to figure out how to build a windmill, um, like the boy who harnessed the wind, William Kakwamba, if you want to figure out how to do that, here, log on to the computer, type in wind turbine, and boom, it will show you exactly how to do it, right? Wow. Yeah. So that way they can like, oh, so I, if I can figure out why my mom's sick, why her stomach hurts, I can look that up. Yeah, you can, you can find it on the computer. You can look in these books. And so it just helps them to know how to use these resources. We're talking with Tyler Clark, who's the CEO and founder of the nonprofit organization Village Book Builders, whose goal is to spread hope through books. Where did you get the idea to do this nonprofit? Oh, that's a great question. So back in 2015, um, a friend of mine from, I served a LDS mission for two years down in Mexico, and she reached out to me and she said, hey, Tyler, there's this village up in the mountains. I don't know if you can help, but they don't have any books. Can you, can you come help us? And at the time, I was getting my master's. I had three young kids. I mean, we're living paycheck to paycheck. Right? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm not a Rockefeller. Like, I don't have the money for this. But, like, how can you say no to that? And so it's like, how, how do they not have books? And Books were something, I, I know you talked about your love for books. Yeah. Um, they changed my life. My, mm-hmm. When I was young, my parents, you know, as a lot of families do nowadays, they, they got divorced, which is sad. And I didn't have any good coping mechanisms until my mom gave me a, the Lord of the Rings set. Hmm. Uh, me and my brother were going on a road trip. She gave it to me, and I just fell in love with books, and they completely changed my life. And it's such a healthy way to learn and to grow. So anyway, um, my friend had reached out to me. We, we started with that. We started fundraising. We started doing odd jobs to pay our own way, my wife and I. And luckily, we just have an amazing community up here in Wisconsin Green Bay, and they donated and helped us. And um, we were able to get $5,000 to the library. Wow. And we went down there. We had... 500 books, all in Spanish, about 10 computers. I mean, smaller than any library we have here in the United States, Mm -hmm. right? We didn't think it was that big of a deal, but we thought, hey, here you go. 
But Lisa, it was insane. When we got down there, there were mayors from neighboring communities. There was the regional representative. They had this big old brass band. (laughs) We're like, like, what the? (laughs) And they kept looking around for, you know, Senior Clark, it's Senior Clark. And I'm like, I'm Senior Clark. It's like, oh, we thought you were older. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, uh, and a lot of these mayors came up to me afterwards like, hey, can you help us build a library? Oh, wow. And I was like, don't, don't you have a library? I'm like, no, this is the nicest library within 90 miles. And we're like, how? Like, how does not have libraries? And so ever since then, we kept getting requests. And I guess it's a fault of mine, but I have a hard time saying no. So we just kept building and building. And it's grown and evolved. And we found out how to really make a library and a learning resource center that really makes a difference and really shows those results which is what we want to see. Well, what are some of those results? What are kind of some of the stories of the people that you've met that whose lives have been changed by, by the work that you're doing with Village Book Builders? Yeah. So one of the biggest things that we'd love to see is the parents. Um, in Malawi, we were talking to some of the, the mothers down there, mm-hmm. and they were telling us how before I used to tell my daughter to get married as soon as they can. Now I tell them to go to school. Yeah. Right. And go to the library. And that's what we want to see. Uh, we talked about teen pregnancy rates. Um, we're measuring those through all the libraries. And we do see them go down to the teens. So in some areas, they go to, they're used to be at the 35%. Um, a lot of our schools and areas, for example, in Mexico, we have this one girl. Uh, she'll read six, seven books a month. Uh, she read the entire Narnia series in about a week. Um, and now she wants to be a doctor, oh, wow. right? Yeah. And the, the coolest thing for me is talking with her, her dad, who's this tough rancher. I mean, we had to climb down this hill just to get to his house, <laughs> you know, just, just macho everything, right? Mm-hmm. And we're talking like, hey, how do you feel about his, your daughter? And he was just so proud of her. And he, he turned to me and said, hey, you see that cow outside? That's for her first year at college. She is going to be the first girl in our community to go to college. Oh, and wow. she will be a doctor. Oh. And that's, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. And that's, that's the kind of hope that we, we, we bring these communities. And that's why we love what we do. Because these parents, they want everything for their kids, just like we do. Mm-hmm. But they don't have the resources to do it. But if you work with them to do it, man, they will do amazing things. Such important work. Um, is, is this something that you're doing full-time, or are you working in another profession as well? I work in another profession. So um, we have about 34 staff, um, but we're all volunteer staff. Oh, so everyone's volunteer. Love, everyone's volunteer, yep. Wow. But we probably all, especially me and our main staff, we probably all put in about 40 hours a week. Mm-hmm. So our, our spouses and are very patient with us as we try and get this really going. So uh, in getting going, what are, what are the future pl- plans for Village Book Builders? Well, we have a major competition coming up where we're presenting. Uh, we got invited to present at Stanford mm-hmm. um, for their longevity competition. Uh, we're talking to a number of foundations. But really, we want to get to the point where in order to really change a lot of these countries, we need to get to the point where we can build 50 libraries a year. Okay. Um, it's a great goal. So, <laughs> it's ambitious. Yeah. Because yeah. I get about three requests a week um, wow. from all over the world for, for libraries. And our waiting list is up to three to four years. Wow. Because we can only build about four to five. And if we could build more we can really make an impact and so these communities don't have to wait five years to get some. So yeah. Well, how can people can be, get involved? How can we help? Yeah, great question. So there's three ways that people can get involved. One, you can visit our website, mm-hmm. villagebookbuilders.org. Um, the biggest part is actually we need online mentors uh, where you can connect with these kids over Skype um, and talk with them and encourage them, and they need that. And right now we have about 300 kids waiting mentors, and it's something where if you can watch a Netflix show, you can become an online mentor. It's easy. Okay. Uh, the other areas you can travel with us if mm-hmm. you want to come, if you're a book lover. Um, you can come to, we're going to Kenya, Nepal, 
other areas and just help us establish these libraries. Um, and of course, you can donate or get involved as, you know, like any of us staff, help us move this mission forward. Right. Hey, well, thank you so much, Tyler, for sharing your passion for literacy to end poverty, your passion for books. Um, we appreciate your time. Oh, thank you, Lisa. I appreciate it. To learn more about Village Book Builders, visit villagebookbuilders.org and follow them on Instagram at villagebookbuilders. Thank you for listening to The Lisa Show. We'll be right back. Welcome to The Lisa Show. In the movie A Cinderella Story, there's a quote that says, never let the fear of striking out keep you from playing the game. Now, lots of, of us find ourselves on the sidelines of life, not actually really doing what we've always dreamed of doing because, well, frankly, we're afraid of what might happen if we try. But if you can change your mindset with just one word... Is that attractive to you? Would you do it? Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe you can lift yourself off the ground and start playing that game. Well, today we're joined by career and life coach Anita Kay, and she's here to tell us what that one word is and how it can change our lives. Welcome, Anita. Thank you, Lisa, and thank you, Richie. I'm happy to be here. Okay. All right, so I want to guess I the know. word. Is it? Is it uh, ice? No, that's two words. Ice cream you, you is two words. Ice cream is it cho know. Ooh, chocolate? It <laughs> no. could be chocolate. Stop it. Uh, no, it's actually chocolate's pretty close. Ah. Okay, well, it's what is this it, one word it. that could could shift our mindsets? Uh, the very powerful word you. Okay, so why is this word yes. so powerful? This word is meaningful, Lisa, because we have the power to shape our self-beliefs, which dictates our decisions, our behaviors, and our attitudes. Um, it's really empowering knowing mm -hmm. only you can value yourself, others, um, and your life really focuses on and dictates our personal choices and can lead to really big transformations. Okay, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stop right here and I'm going to say, listen... The one thing that gets in my way <laughs> is the one thing that could empower me, and that's right. me. Yes, Richie, you're absolutely right. Um, and, and, and that's because, it, you know, that's about the fear, right? How does the fear get in the way of maximizing our, our, our potential or our outlook on things? And I agree with you. And I, I've been there, too, and many of my clients have. Yeah. And I, yeah, and I feel that when we move outside of our comfort zone – Fear is always reinforced and strengthens our belief that it may be dangerous, risky, or worse, you know, feeling trapped with that no way out. So this makes it hard to move past a fear, especially if you come to a conclusion that you didn't accomplish something specific you set out to do. And unfortunately, this reinforces negative beliefs and keeps us in distress. Um, I, too, grew up having a fear of disappointing others. Mm -hmm. As I talk in my book uh, about it in my book, Behaving Bravely, in the areas of uh, one, speaking up to ask for help when I suspected I had a learning disability from grade school through college, and then when I was a victim of a molestation incident at the age of 10. These experiences really supported my fears growing up, and, and actually I feel plagued mm. aspects of my personality leading to less than perfect coping skills. So not taking action towards possible new solutions can compound our feelings of lack and possibly contribute to, you know, certain outcomes. Right. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's that belief that we tell ourselves. And I feel like everyone has fear. Um, I mean, it could be coming from different vantage points, right? Like some people are Absolutely. afraid of failing or looking stupid or for dreaming. And other Absolutely. people are afraid of success and then what that might they mean are. as well. Absolutely. And so if this kind of fear, if you're saying, well, that's reinforced in our society and yet the answers lie within or or, or with us, then how, mm -hmm. what is that tipping point? How do we switch the, that uh, dialogue that we're telling ourselves? I think that's a great question, Lisa. I think um, we can discover what we're really in fear or afraid of. And I think um, it's not easy, but definitely committing to self-awareness strategies. For example, uh, things like taking a personal inventory, um, chasing or obtaining the facts about the fears that are plaguing us. Uh, and of course, um, talking to professionals are, are, are definitely a few that come to mind. 
as a life coach, this is a common theme that my clients come to me with. Mm -hmm. And uh, discovering what the sources are is a good place to begin from their current state of mind to understanding the issues that affect that are affecting that there or that one specific current situation. Mm -hmm. And of course, the status of their emotional state, like, you know, mounting anger at that point or frustration. Um, So then, you know, it's really imperative to lead to um, certain inquiries. I, I, I really dive very gently, but, but deep and, and we'll go on examples like asking a client, you know, do you have a core wound that, that you feel is holding you back? How did it, how did it affect you when it happened? How does it now, how do you nurture it? Then we uncover some supporting affirmations and, and I also recommend a lot of mind shifting exercises. Uh, for example, in a case like this, you know, making a list of three to five self-reflective questions about the disturbances and then creating helpful suggestions to replace them. Uh, this reminds us that we have a choice to mind break out of the old thoughts that no longer serve us and move into more of a confident mindset with practice, of course, over time. We're talking with Anita Kay about changing our life with one word. That you, that word is you which I think is is, uh, is very empowering. But I feel like shortly after I say the word you and identify that, you know, I'm the one that's going to be able to make the change, mm-hmm. my next word is but. So help us get no, past. No, you need some mind-shifting exercises. Yeah, but help us get past our that, big buts. Yeah, and we, and we, we definitely have them. They're, di- they're the biggest roadblocks. So once we find that out, how do we use it to better ourselves? Uh, Many of us have a goal to reach, and we usually hold ourselves back because of our conscious and our unconscious fears. And in my book, I formulated um, a brave paradigm um, that outlines a personal roadmap by rewriting new self-beliefs with mind-shifting perspectives to help us improve our view on things like our career, relationships, even personal development. So the, the acronym BRAVE actually stands for something. B is for benevolence, R is for readiness, A is for alignment, V is for vision, and E is for engagement. So um, I guide my clients through each acronym, and we set up a step um, to move ourselves into a pattern of a new mind, a mind shift into an action. So um, benevolence is a term I coined to basically describe helpful beliefs and assumptions. They are benevolent self-beliefs. So if we're going to maximize our potential, we must begin by believing that we can and stop being held hostage to limiting thoughts about ourselves and the world. So choosing the right benevolence can get you off to a powerful start. Mm. So for example, if somebody comes to me and says, um, they've got, you know, a roadblock in their career. They and I and I get this all the time. Uh, if they have a belief, something like Anita, I cannot see a way forward in my career. So after really digging deeper into that, we'll replace that belief that they that they've had in their mind for a long time into something a little more gentle and something more impactful and more descriptive um, to replace that belief. So something could be suggested like. Now, the benevolence could be, well, I see my future clearly, and I'm ready to start a heroic journey to achieve my goals. And so I think, you know, moving into a helpful belief and a new assumption about ourselves is step one. Mm-hmm. Step two, um, the readiness, you know, admitting we've got that problem, right? It's like every classic 12-step program. Yep. So our, the BRAVE system requires us to recognize that we need to commit ourselves to doing something now. And when we're ready to change, is that transformation or change possible? And then alignment is all about when we affect change, we've got to center ourselves and account for all the factors that impact our negative behavior. So kind of getting all of our ducks in a row is is the alignment. And then vision means that we're able to see our desired destination on the road to get there. You know, creating that plan, viewing ourselves honestly and compassionately. And then finally, engagement. So once we create a plan, and it can be a very simple, short plan, too. It could be one specific goal or it could be a handful of a few. Then it's time to take action. But action isn't a one-time thing. It's a process of action and reaction, learning what works and, of course, correct along the way and, and and, and, you know, what doesn't serve you. 
It all starts with you. Anita Kay has been our guest. She is the founder of Anita Kay Solutions. It's a firm focusing on career, life, and personal coaching. Thank you so much for being with us, Anita. And uh, may we all have those Benevoliefs? Is that? Am I saying yeah. that right? Yes, I like those. I like that. Ah, that's such Benevoliefs. a that's such a, a cool word. Yeah, it really is. One day it's I'd like to invent. Way. I'd like to invent my own word. But today's not that day. Fantastic. <laughs> thanks for being with us, Anita. Hey, thanks. Um, I make my bed every day, and I insist this is one of the parental um, enforcements that I. I, I'm not giving up on this one. Okay. Uh, making their bed. Did Good. you make your bed today? Even after school, if they can't, you didn't make your bed, go up there, make your bed because I want it to be an automatic response. Now, granted, I thought it would, uh, that more would do it automatically by now yeah. than, than they have, but yeah. I'm not going to give, I've given up on a lot of parenting ideals that I had. You gave this up on is, the family band? You know, but this is one that I'm not giving up on. Do you make your bed every morning, I, Richie? Here, here is the deal. I think that uh, you and our guests that we're going to introduce in a minute, <laughs> you guys are going to have a lot in common. And if, if for no other reason, my purpose in this conversation will be to be the polar opposite in my life, and this is not an exaggeration. Okay. In my life, in my years of, uh-huh. of living, I have probably made my bed less than ten times. <gasps> Richie, no, I, I mean, and maybe we'll get into some of my reasoning why, but less than ten times. Okay, maybe we got to get into may, this. Maybe less than five. I can think of three times that really? I did it. Very begrudgingly, as my ex-wife said, "What? You're not going to help me make oh, this wow. bed?" And I was oh, like, wow. "All right, I'll help." Uh, you know, uh, but uh, it, you're not alone. A lot of us don't make our beds. It's a seemingly, you know, simple task. But our next guest believes it could change the world. Admiral William H. McRaven is a retired U.S. Navy four-star admiral, the author of "Make Your Bed: Little Things That Can Change Your Life and Maybe the World." And he's joining us to share his simple tips that he believes will improve. Yes, you, Richie, even your life. Listen, my mind's open. <laughs> Welcome. Hey, thanks. Great to be with you. So when did you realize that making your bed was so life-changing? Was it when you were a kid or when you were older? Yeah, you know, when I was a kid, uh, to your point, my mother, who was an East Texas school teacher, okay. uh, always insisted that I make my bed every morning. But I'm not sure I knew why. It was just, you know, when my parents tell me to do something, I, I tried to do it. Uh, and she insisted that I make it well. But it really wasn't until I went to Navy SEAL training in 1977 that I think I began to appreciate why it was important to make the bed. What did you realize? And, uh, and, well, you know, every morning we had to get up and we would, uh, we would have our room inspected, our uniform inspected, and our bed inspected. And initially, I just didn't understand it. I mean, I came to SEAL training to be a battle-hardened Navy SEAL, and now <laughs> yeah. teaching me to make my bed every morning. And a couple months into the uh, SEAL program, I finally turned to one of the crusty old uh, <laughs> Navy SEALs, Vietnam veterans, and I said, why do we do this every morning? And he said, well, it's simple. If you start your day with a task completed and you do it well, it inspires you to do another task and another and another. And he said, and oh, by the way, it's about the little things in life. If you can't even make your bed correctly, how are we ever going to trust you to lead a complex SEAL mission? Learn to do the little things right, and you'll learn to do the big things right. And so that's when I really began to realize the importance of making your bed. Wow. Okay. You know where I stand. And I agree. I mean, I, yeah. I agree that it, it, is, it is the simple things. It is... Uh, you know, that motivation towards task. But but making a bed, does it have to be making a bed or could it, could it be no. other things? It absolutely could be other things. Uh, I mean, you, I think you just have to have a routine in the morning. However, what I would offer is mm-hmm. making your bed is one of those simple things that you get some immediate gratification. Yeah. Because when you make your bed, you see a well-made bed. It, your room seems clean, your, you know, your environment is clean, your head is kind of clean of the clutter. Uh, so making your bed helps. 
I agree. Well, this this idea, though, of this, the little things can have a big impact on your life is a great idea. Um, wh- what are some other of these small items or small tasks that you have found that have had the most bang for their buck? Yeah, again, being a military man, uh, you know, you learn very early on that there are some there are important things to do to do them well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, as I mentioned, uh, we not only had to make our bed every morning, our uniform had to look appropriate and correct and sharp and crisp. So, you know, the other part of the little things is, you know, how do you look every morning? You know, do, do you take the time to, again, this was part of our military routine. Do you take the time to shave and make sure that you're, you know, however you are dressed looks appropriate, looks clean and looks neat. Uh, little things like that matter. But I would offer anything you do uh, that, uh, that motivates you to do something else uh, is important. Anything you do that is, that is good about, you know, again, being neat and being clean uh, helps unclutter your mind to do other things in life. Yeah, I like that idea of an uncluttered mind. I think that's what everybody is, is really kind of hoping for. Um, you know, you're a man who's led tens of thousands of men and women in the armed forces. You've overseen some of the most vital Navy SEAL operations of the last decade, including the raid that killed um, al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden. How did how did doing the simple things help you be successful in complex, um, difficult environments? Well, the simple things are the building blocks for doing complex things. So, for example, when we planned the mission to get Osama bin Laden, there were hundreds of steps in that mission, hundreds of different phases. But you have to start with phase one, and you have to do it correctly. And it it may be a simple phase, but you build on that simple task with another simple task that's done well and another one and another one. So you can't build anything complex unless you start with something very, very simple. Uh, and, and I think that's true of a lot of things in life, whether it is your life plan or whether it is uh, whether it is doing something complex at work. You have to start with the simple thing, the little thing, and you have to do it right and then build on it. We're talking with William H. McRaven. He's a retired admiral of the U.S. Navy, talking about the importance of, uh, of making our bed, of doing the simple things and how they can have um, much bigger and, and, and uh, larger impact as far as that goes. Um, one of your other pieces of advice to people is giving people hope. So I'm hoping maybe we can, <laughs> no pun intended there, sorry, uh, we can pivot to, to talking about hope. Absolutely. Well, you know, again, you learn, uh, as I've said before, Navy SEAL training is a lot like uh, life crammed into six months mm-hmm. uh, because you are challenged every day um, and, and you find that hope is the most powerful force in the universe. And you give people hope, at least we found this in SEAL training, and I think I found it later on in life, or I know I found it later on in life, that when you see people that rise to the occasion, that that take on a challenge and in a difficult time are inspiring, they give you hope. Uh, I talk about in, in the book Make Your Bed about when we were in the mud flats which was a particularly difficult time in SEAL training, and everybody looked like they were about to quit. And one guy, when he was up to his neck in mud, started singing. And hmm. it gave us hope that if, if he could start singing when he was up to his neck in mud and cold and wet and miserable and the wind howling off the beach, then maybe we could hang on. And wow. most guys did. And I think in life you find those examples of people in challenging times that step up and show their best that give the rest of us hope. Um, and so that's, I think, how you inspire people and give people hope. Wow. You know, I it, it, another piece of advice that you gave is that you can't go get at it alone. And, and I'm wondering, uh, what is the best example of teamwork that you've seen that really proved that that is, is a true statement? Well, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time in combat in my career, and the environment of combat is probably the the harshest uh, situation you can find yourself in. Mm -hmm. And you find in those situations that great teams will come together because they realize that the lives of the other men and women are at stake. Uh, And so I saw it. I can't single out one specific time, but I can tell you thousands of times when teams that were running well came together 
and performed a mission exceedingly well because they had uh, they had a good plan, they had rehearsed it, they had trained for it, they had the right people, they had the right attitude, and the team came together realizing that every individual on that team, their responsibility was to do their job to make sure that somebody else on the team didn't get killed in the process of conducting the mission. Uh, and that's when you see, I think, teamwork at its best. But I have seen team, great teamwork uh, in hospitals. I, I ran the University of Texas system. We had a lot of hospitals, and mm-hmm. you would watch doctors and nurses and, and caregivers come together in a hospital or in a classroom. Uh, you know, so teamwork is everywhere. But the thing about teamwork you have to understand to make a team successful, if you are on that team, you have to realize it's not about you. Yeah. It's never about you. If you want a team to do well, it is about getting the mission done and making sure that you come together as a team and put your egos aside to accomplish that particular task. There's so many great principles that uh, that we've discussed in our time together. We only have a few minutes left with you. And I guess I, I would wonder, how can we pivot and bring this into our own home? We started about the discussion about making our bed. That's something that we do within the walls of our own home, whether this is uh, dynamics of relationship that we have just with our, our spouse, our partner, or instilling these values in our kids. How does that translate and how can we best do that? Yeah, I think that's a it's a complex question, um, but uh, you know I can I can only uh, kind of go back to my experience being raised as mm-hmm. a kid. I had two great parents uh, who taught me good values early on. Uh, they they made sure that I understood that as a young boy, when I made decisions, those decisions had to be based on three criteria: was it moral, was it legal, was it ethical? Mm-hmm. Was it ethical? Are you are you following the rules? Was it legal? Are you following the law? Was it moral? Are you doing what's right? Uh, they inspired me through their own examples. Uh, they made sure I understood uh, growing up in life that we should treat everyone with respect. Uh, and, and that was an important uh, aspect of my life was regardless of a person's, uh, you know, religious background, ethnic background, uh, orientation, whatever it happened to be, color of their skin, treat them with respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, so values in the home, I think, are critical. Uh, doing the little things right are important. My, again, my parents, my father was a, a World War II fighter pilot, uh, served 26 years in the Air Force. Uh, so I, I was raised with these, you know, uh, these parents who had, were part of the greatest generation, who I think also understood the value of hard work uh, and, and, again, doing, doing things correctly uh, and doing things for other people. So having these values instilled in me at a young age certainly uh, made an impression on me. And hopefully I've been able to pass that on to my family. Yeah. I, I have to ask you, though, uh, your dad served in the Air Force and then you joined the Navy. Did he just <laughs> was he just like, oh, what have I done? How how did I do this? Yeah, I think he would have preferred I go into the Air Force. Uh, and, and I certainly enjoyed flying. I had a chance <laughs> to do a little bit of flying when I was a midshipman. But I think at the end of the day, he was proud uh, when I did well in the uh, in the Navy, and uh, and and <laughs> if he had any regrets, he never showed them. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the title of the book is "Make Your Bed." It's the little things that can change your life and maybe the world. Uh, we've been visiting with Admiral. William H. McRaven. He is a retired admiral of the U.S. Navy, and you can find that book on Amazon. Thanks for being with us. You're listening to The Lisa Show. Welcome to The Lisa Show. It can be easy to take a haircut for granted, especially when there's so many people living in our country that can't afford one. Now, without a proper haircut, it can be hard for people to find jobs connect with people around them, or even have self-confidence in public. And this issue is what inspired the creation of Nashville Street Barbers, a group of barbers in Tennessee that get together every Monday evening to give out free haircuts to the homeless in their community. They got our attention. We wanted to highlight their organization for all the good that they're doing. And joining us today is Caroline Linder, co-founder of Nashville Street Barbers, to discuss with us her organization and the power of a haircut. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So on a typical Monday, how many people come out to get a haircut? Well, so every Monday, actually, it's um, 
three nonprofits that get together and serve the homeless. So we get about 300 to 400 people on a Monday night. Um, And we get anywhere from probably 30 to 80 haircuts. It really all depends on how many volunteers we have. Sure. Um, But yeah, the most we've ever done is 82, I believe. Oh, wow. Wow. But in one night, that's a lot. So how does Nashville Street Barbers operate? Um, so we are all volunteers, um, and every Monday night we show up, we have a bunch of gear. We've got tables and lights and chairs and, uh, kits that have clippers and trimmers and everything we'd need that's cordless. Um, and so we go downtown, uh, around 545. Everybody shows up. We start the list. Uh, so we have a list of people waiting to get haircuts. And then at 6 o'clock, we start cutting hair. And we end at 8 o'clock, so two hours. And just get as many in as you can in that two hours. Uh Uh-huh, yep. So I I love this idea because it's a simple thing that can have a huge impact. And you've seen this and the effects of it up close. What, What sort of impact can a haircut have on someone? I feel like it's almost like a clean slate uh, for the people that get uh, haircuts every Monday night. Uh, It's definitely a sense of pride and and self-confidence, but it really helps people, just like what you said, um, be able to interact socially with people, which is something that I think people don't think of. you know, want to go out and apply for that job or apply for the housing that they need. Um, It just really kind of brings them out more into the light, whereas before they would tend to stay in the shadows a little bit. Well, and I think it's also how people treat people, unfortunately. I mean, the impact. But you you see someone who is a little bit unkempt, and and unfortunately, I think it's human behavior Mm -hmm. to to steer away from that or, or to not engage with that person. Yeah, a lot of people think that they're lazy or, you know, they must be addicted to something if they look like this, which is totally untrue. So, yeah, for sure. So one of your goals um, as an organization you list is to empower your neighbors in Nashville. And I was really struck by that. How in your experience, how do you think that that your work has fulfilled this goal? Um, Well, so first thing, I guess, is that we treat each person individually, um, and we treat them with respect, which everyone deserves. Um, We talk to them as we're doing their haircuts, you know, we're touching them, which a lot of these people have not felt the power of human touch Mm. in a very long time, which is just really, really powerful. Um, We listen and we empathize. We don't prod if If they don't want to talk, you know, we don't have Mm -hmm. to talk, but a lot of people do like to talk. Um, And so it's just in the end, it's it's just touching and listening and talking. Uh, I always hug everyone at the very end. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Most people are up for it. Some people are not up for it. Um, But I think that really just shows that there's someone out there that's thinking of them, that, that cares what happens to them. It creates, in my mind, just such a beautiful uh, like transformation, right? Mm-hmm. That someone could come, maybe they haven't had a haircut uh, in, in a good long time, they come and they can get that, that great haircut, but also that there's a transformation in that they're being treated like a human, yeah. that they're yeah. being able to, to not be judged in that time, to be able, in some cases, like you said, uh, have a physical contact, to be able to even just have a conversation with people mm-hmm. who aren't judging them, aren't trying to, to get them to do something or not do something, but that it's just like a, 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 they can come to something like this and be completely transformed. Mm-hmm. It is. And a lot of people are out there, you know, not for horrible things, for simple things like hospital bills, yeah. you know, or being kicked out of an apartment, not having first and last month's rent. And so a lot of people like to talk about that just so that we know, you know, where they're coming from. And I think that helps them a lot. Yeah, we're talking with Caroline Linder, who's a barber and co-founder of the nonprofit organization Nashville Street Barbers. So what inspired you to to be a founder in this organization? Um, 
Well, I had started uh, organizing different uh, haircutting times for uh, other nonprofits. Um, with my last job, we helped two different nonprofits uh, secure kind of haircuts every month. Um, and then I left that job and I really still wanted to continue the work, but I didn't know where I would start. So I saw a Facebook post for a mobile shower truck hmm. and huh. the group was called Shower Up and they're one of the nonprofits that we serve with. Um, so they have uh, two, three, I think three mobile shower trucks now. And I had messaged them and I said, hey, you know, I cut hair. Would you mind if I come and cut hair alongside you guys? Uh, and they were very up for it. Uh, they also had a generator, which was really good because at that time uh, I didn't have any cordless tools. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like a symbiotic relationship, yeah. uh, showers and haircuts. And then um, I met um, a barber student um, who brought along a couple of his friends, and we basically got to talking and said, you know, we want to do this on our own. We want to be our own nonprofit. Um, and so uh, we started going through the process of that, and it's just kind of grown, and we've had so many cool things happen to us. So it's it's pretty pretty surprising it's very humbling so you can't tease us with so many cool things you're going to have to share one of those <laughs> yeah, those, those cool experience. things with us yeah um i mean so right as we were becoming a nonprofit, which i believe was just very serendipitous uh i received a ten thousand dollar grant from hardy's um i was became one of their hometown heroes oh, wow. in which i don't I don't know how they found me. I didn't apply for this. No one put me up for this. Hmm. So it was pretty crazy. So that money actually really helped us in the beginning. Um, we've had uh, John Bon Jovi uh, come. I've heard of him. What? Yeah, yeah. Um, and something cool. To get his haircut? Happened. No. He did, not, he did not get his haircut. Not with that long, beautiful hair, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, no something that just happened, uh, Channel 5 News, which did a story on us a, a while back, uh, just won a Mid-South Emmy for their story on us. Oh, wow. So wow. that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, it's interesting. So we have a contingency of listeners who are there in Nashville, and they're going to be able to, you know, come out or even show show support as far as that goes sure. but you know people nationwide who are listening to this and going oh, man what a cool yeah, thing that they've got going on idea. in nashville give them some advice if they you know maybe they are a, a stylist or a barber in their area they find that there's not something like this in their local area give them a couple pieces of advice if they want to make this change for their community Sure. And that's kind of our, our what we want to do is we want to inspire other cosmetologists and barbers to start their own kind of branch almost of Nashville street barbers. So mm -hmm. Chicago street barbers or whatnot. Um, I have found that the easiest thing is to find a nonprofit um, that goes out and serves the homeless that you can work alongside. Um, mm -hmm. First thing, that's security. So you mm -hmm. have other people around you instead of going out by yourself, which I don't recommend. Um, and then a lot of times through that, you meet the community, you meet the people, you start relationships. Um, and then I was just annoying, super annoying to <laughs> all of my coworkers and anyone I knew that cut hair and just tried to talk. Not annoying, passionate. <laughs> I was very passionately yes. involved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and through that, I got some help. Um, and then from there, you just kind of decide what what your setup is. Do you yeah. go out every month? Do you go out every week? Um, but it really, really helps if you find that nonprofit that is open to having you cut alongside them. Do you feel that your work has brought the community closer together? I do. Um, I do, especially. So Monday nights almost seem like 
uh, I mean, for lack of a better word, it's almost like a little festival, you know? Yeah, yeah. We've got haircuts, we've got showers, we've got hot meals, we've got clothes, we've got supplies. And it's Nashville, so um, I feel like you have to have music of some sort. Right. Like, if if there's not, you know... Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, definitely. People bring... And there was a choir that came, I think, a couple weeks ago. We have... Um, a bus that has a sonogram in it for some of the community that may be pregnant. Hmm. Um, So I feel like all of those have really brought Hmm. people together, and it's the same people every week. It's, I mean, we do get new people, you know, here and there, but it's really the same people. So we look forward to seeing each other and to talking to each other and kind of catching up and what's going on with each other's lives. Is there any particularly inspiring story or stories that, that, that you have from people whose hair you've cut and these people who you've gotten to know? Yeah, my favorite story is uh, Cindy. Uh, who I actually just saw last night. We had uh, haircuts last night. Um, Cindy worked with a carnival, a touring carnival, and she had a heart attack. I believe it was in Chicago, maybe. Um, And she, you know, was stranded. She used most of her money on medical bills. She had no one to call, no one to turn to. Um, She had heard that the community in Nashville, the homeless community and kind of the support um, was pretty good. So she used the last of her money to take a bus down to Nashville. Um, And since then, uh, she has, she's so diligent. She's such a hard worker. She's had a couple different jobs. Um, She was cleaning, I think, at Bass Pro Shops for a while. Um, I can't remember exactly the things that she's done, but I, through all of it, she's also been doing the contributor magazine. Um, and Mm. so she is out there all the time selling the contributor. But the interesting thing about Cindy is she is a one woman show and she has uh, her own camp. So throughout this, even when she had jobs, she was camping outside. Hmm. Um, she has a cat named Mischief that she has trained to stay by the campsite and sleep with her at night. Um, And she's just awesome. She's just a strong woman, and I really look up to her. Wow. Caroline Lindner is a barber and co-founder of the nonprofit organization Nashville Street Barbers. You can learn more about them, how you can support their cause by going to NashvilleStreetBarbers.org. Or if you're looking for an opportunity to serve in your local community, don't forget, you can go to JustServe.org. If you are not finding and following The Lisa Show wherever you social media lies, is that a word? I'm not sure. Uh, Be sure that you find The Lisa Show that you follow and you are welcome to interact with us there. You can find us on the BYU Radio app, which is free. You can email us at thelisashow at byu.edu. What we're saying essentially is we would love to hear from you. I'm not going to beg, but I am going to ask very nicely. You're welcome to reach out to us. Thanks for listening to The Lisa Show.